Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The, the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh, man, I spent, like, a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy, like, a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. Welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football, sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Well, since we've been doing this historical series of podcasts, you know, I've always had an issue of deciding on what type of interviews I like the most. I mean, all these interviews, you do get some great inside information, um, you know, but with the players, you get the, the, you get the insight from them themselves on what happens on the field during the game, in between games, that type of thing. But when it comes to those interviews with the executive, you know, the ones that actually are dealing with a team during the day-to-day operations, usually you get a little bit more information about the team or about the league at the time than you would specifically when speaking with a former player. Well, this episode, we are going to be getting some insight to the Spokane Shock. We're going to be speaking with a gentleman who was, during his tenure, uh, an integral part of the team who rose from just being somebody who worked on the season ticket side of the team and used it as a stepping stool until he became one of the most, I would say, one of the most respected executives in the league at that time. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Ryan Iker. Well, if you happen to follow the Arena Football League, and especially a certain team up in the uh, Pacific Northwest, you, you happen to know, probably know this gentleman quite well. He, a man of many hats. Uh, if you knew the Spokane Shock, you knew how hard that this gentleman worked. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Ryan Eicher, a gentleman, as I said, who did so much for the Spokane Shock. Hey, thanks for joining us, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, first, I want to find out. I mean, we know you started off. Uh, I mean, you basically, your, your entire AFL career was with with the Shock itself. You started off as an account executive back in December of 2010. Uh, you're joining a team, uh, an organization that has just come off a an Arena Bowl championship. But, but what I want to know from you is that how did you get involved, and what brought you? Was it football itself that brought you to into the AFL and the Shock, or was it was it something else in particular? Uh, yeah, it was, it was football more or less. I mean, myself, I grew up in a small town, Washington state that, you know, more or less is a a Friday night lights situation and has had some great, you know, players come through there and including a current guy that's the offensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys and Kellen Moore that, you know, played at Boise state. But, you know, so I had a a history in football and and did a short spin on uh, freshman year of college, but, 
you know, once I was finishing up school at Eastern Washington University, I uh, was kind of looking around for some jobs and knew I, I wanted to stay in sports in some capacity as a, a even though I was a business administration and, and kind of marketing emphasis uh, graduate. But yeah, they had an opportunity to pop up for a ticket sales spot. So I went in and interviewed with an owner, Brady Nelson and, and his team over there and ended up getting a gig. And, you know, from there it was, uh, you know, off and running more or less. So it was my first chance to you know, work in professional sports and really get my foot in the door and, and get some experience from, you know, what I knew I needed to do from the ticket sales side. But also it was just one of those spots where I knew I was going to have a chance, you know, at football and hanging around after hours and picking up everything I could to help out and learn more from, you know, football equipment and player personnel and, mm-hmm. and scouting with Ryan Rigbane and all that kind of stuff too. So it was a good, good combo of a little bit of everything. How was it coming into the organization? Because as I said, you had just they had just won the Arena Bowl. I mean, being the account executive that you were, I mean, did it make it easier for you being a first timer and and trying to promote? You know, obviously bringing more fans for for the team itself in uh, for the twenty eleven season. Yeah, make no mistake. I mean, it certainly makes it easy on a salesperson when a team has won a championship and you get to come in the, the season after. So that certainly, you know, helped and, and eased probably the, uh, you know, the learning curve for me uh, a bit, having uh, despite having a few other jobs, you know, prior and, and throughout college and things like that as well. But, um, yeah, it helped. I mean, coming off that win and, and selling towards the next season. But, you know, the shock. You know, from the AF two days and then entering the Arena Football League in that first season in 2010 and yeah. winning the championship there, they had, they had a great history. I mean, they, you know, set records in terms of sellout games mm-hmm. and pretty much did pretty much sold every game out during their period of the AF two and then heading into that season in 2010 as well. So uh, it's funny that you bring it up because I wanted to ask you because, you know, a lot, you know, when. You know, with the shock coming over to, to the AFL, and everybody knows when it comes to th- when people think of the AFL, they think of certain sizes of the arena. Did the size of the arena in Spokane hurt you in any way when it came to selling tickets? To, just to look at the opposite end of things. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, they were typically, you know, back in in. You know, I'm having to scratch the the service here a little bit in terms of data. And, you know, Andrew Andrew Dolan, my my ticket director and boss that I had there at the shop, will probably shake his head if he hears this a little bit, just in terms of the numbers. But, you know, they were typically selling out pretty well in advance. You know, anywhere from yeah. from 80, 85, 80 to eighty five percent of their tickets, you know, out of the gate. So, you know, with season tickets, you know, peaking at some point, you know, around sixty five hundred seven thousand tickets, you wow. know, late in those two days out of a, an arena that was sitting about, you know, 10, five or 11 max with some floor space, you know, and standing room space, you know, sort of situation. Um, you know, they were pretty well stocked. I mean, they did uh, an excellent job of getting folks in season tickets and it was an extraordinary situation. So we were really in a, in a demand spot that allowed us, you know, and certainly the owners to take a look at some situations from the business perspective, you know, once they made that jump from the AF2 to the AFL and some changes in expenses and business models and those different things came into play. So I don't think it hurt at all. I think if anything, you know, it, it definitely probably helped uh, Spokane's situation more or less. And, and really, I mean, if, if anyone had ever gone to a game there, I mean, the ev- environment was, it was absolutely electric. I mean, that place was Death Valley and, you know, an extraordinary place to watch a, a sporting event. That's for sure. For sure. And, and obviously, I think any team right now, no matter what sport you're in, uh, any of the, the smaller sports, if you can already have 70% of your of your seats filled oh yeah that's 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 amazing so (laughs) unbelievable yeah they did they did an excellent job you know certainly great coaches great players winning helps you know but the organization as a whole really you know there in spokane from starting in 2006 on you know it was a it was a great 
great organization. Now, my, my, one question I've always wanted to ask you, because, you know, you were, you were an account exec just for approximately three and a half to four months. And at that after that point, you took on being a director of marketing, communications and player ops. How did you in, in your opinion, how do you why, how did you make the jump so quick? Well, it, it extended a little bit. I mean, I continued a lot of those ticket sales related duties really for, you know, about the first whole season that I was there. Okay. So, you know, continuing that stuff through that first year. So it was really probably about a year and, you know, three or four months in addition. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, though, I mean, I just, yeah, just did everything I could, like I mentioned, in terms of, you know, scooping up those opportunities to pick up some additional jobs and, and stuff. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd sell tickets during the game and then I, or, or during the day, excuse me. And then I would, you know, stay in the office afterward and I would do equipment or I, you know, help with football operations and practice set up, you know, clean up, set up for the next day, whatever it may be. So it worked out pretty well. And, and fortunately being in a small organization, you know, with, you know, Brady and Adam Nebaker was a GM at the time and Lance Beck running, you know, marketing and, and things like that too. All those guys were just, you know, wide open and, um, you know, having a great time and willing to, you know, take the time to help out, you know, young folks in the organization that wanted a, a bigger bite and to do some more stuff. Right. Now, when you first started doing the, those three new, you know, the three new jobs for the shock, what was the one thing that you felt that, you know, the team is doing well, as you said, in the, in the stands. Uh, what did you think that you needed to do to what, what needed to be improved the most? What did you feel that was lacking that you felt that you could improve being director of marketing, communications, et cetera? Ooh, you know, um, I think you know, more than anything, probably just developing a little bit more over time in terms of some of just the, the graphics presentation, you know, things like that. And, th- and that wasn't all just, you know, myself per se in terms of, you know, the, the creative side and things like that. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate to bring on some great individuals, too, that really, you know, even interns that really blossomed, blossomed with the organization and got some good experience and, and were able to move on, too. But I think that was probably one of the big kickers. And then stepping into the operations side um, a little bit over time and and controlling a little bit more, I guess, of the, the day to day, so to speak. I think one of the things that probably improved on most was the community outreach and and that relationship um, in one aspect um, I think, you know, you and I have had conversations about it and you could probably attest though too. I think the other side of it was probably a little bit more of just the direct connection from the communications, public relations, mm-hmm. and kind of creating that voice on the back end for the organization for not only those direct, you know, conversations or, or talks that we had with media individuals such as yourself, yeah. but um, even with fans and the accessibility and, you know, having those, you know, side conversations and late night social media exchanges and, and emails <laughs> or text messages or whatever it may be with a, a season ticket holder over time too. So, so yeah, I think over time, you know, from the marketing operations, um, despite some of those or, or beyond some of those updates, you know, yeah. probably talking a little bit more of the the operational and then uh, community outreach, which was so great by staff like Crystal Medina and, and folks that I was able to you know bring on and work with there for a number of years. Yeah. Now, uh, when you started getting to the player ops portion of your job, do, do you remember you were talking about text? I just said it just made me think of a question. It's like, uh, what was the first late night text that you received? You may not have to go into necessary and into details, but what was the first late night text that you received that you you finally said to yourself, "Yeah, I'm in it, all right." you know i don't know if it was necessarily a text um as much as it probably was that you know really when i started getting into the player personnel side of it and everything i think it was probably 
It was. It was when I actually completed the playbook for okay. the season for for Coach Olson and wow. and working through with his staff and things like that too. Of course, I got to be the late night you know tech guy and actually take all the plays from the whiteboard and everything else they drew up and, and put it in the computer system and you know get that thing and create the notebooks and put all that. So I do remember like taking a picture and posting it on my stuff. You know, first playbook. You know, sort of done. You know, of course, beyond what I you know probably overly prepared for my seventh and eighth grade you know, football team that I coached on the side <laughs> here in the falls. But um, that was probably the biggest thing. I think, you know, player-wise, uh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come back on that one. I'm going okay. to think in terms of some of those first ones, but always, uh, always entertaining with the, with the player side for sure. So you've actually, you've actually opened my, opened my eyes a little bit more because, you know, when people look at uh, their titles, as you have really attested to now, is that it, it, the, it's really just a title because you are basically a, uh, you were a guy that did, you had, I said you wore so many hats. That's, that's just crazy. Cause I never even knew that you had done the, uh, that you had done the playbook for for the shock. That's actually pretty cool. Do, do you do you still have a copy of the of your first ever playbook, Brian? I think I do. Yeah. I think I, you know, I still got you know, despite moving around and, and being somewhat of a, a minimalist, uh, you know, I have a few kind of treasure bins that I still carry with me from place to place. You know, with old shirts and jerseys, but then some old memorabilia and things yeah. like that too. And I think I did come across the original playbook there, as well as a few others. So. I was about to say, uh, it's a good thing you didn't have to head on to you didn't have to head over on the internet and. Pick Pick up the uh, what was it the, the Memphis Pharaohs uh, playbook that's over on, on on the internet right now. So that that's good to hear that uh, Coach Olson wanted to run his own plays. So <laughs> um, yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, talk, looking at marketing communications, what when you first started getting into the communications side of it, um, what did you find more challenging? Uh, dealing with the uh, dealing with the uh, the press in Spokane, uh, dealing with the press nationally, or dealing with the the head office. The meaning, meaning Ooh. the AFL head office. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, the AFL office was a little bit of a, a challenge at times. I mean, we did go through a number of people. I mean, you can recall in terms yeah. of kind of shuffle there over the a few seasons, um, you know, and and really that trickled, you know, through the teams, too. I mean, those that came and gone year to year and you know, everything as well on the different staff members and, and seemingly, you know, updates to the directory that you would receive over the course of the, you know, season that you were in with new names and, and phone numbers that you had to track down. But um, so that was always a little bit of a challenge at the AFL level, despite, you know, they made some good strides and, and some folks there, too, that right. helped get things organized. I think, you know, the national media was probably the most difficult just in terms of, you know, outlets and education process and kind of working with those folks. I think, you know, here in Spokane, uh, our, our local media was was awesome. I mean, our friends over at, you know, KHQ and then we had 700 ESPN and, you know, Keith Oso and Dennis Patchen and Sam Adams and all these great you know, folks that were just head over heels to work with us and, you know, made it a really enjoyable experience, too. So um, certainly those folks, you know, made my job easier locally. Now, was it frustrating at all, though, because you're saying, you know, it's really your your issues were more or less with the, as you said, some, uh, you know, dealing with the, the national media. Did you feel, knowing that how long that this league had been around, that you would have thought that the Nas- that the national media would know more about the AFL than that what they had currently had. I mean, we're we're talking you know we're talking 2012. The league had been around since 87. You know, right? 
Yeah. And, and those are the exact kind of conversations that you have with folks. You know, I mean, it's a similar situation, right? Media media folks come and go. You get that turnover, especially at those sports anchors and, you know, uh, those products and stuff, too. But but, yeah, it was it was surprising at times just in terms of especially when we started venturing back into markets, you know, that it had teams traditionally you know, over long periods of time just to. You know, get a little bit of playing coverage. You know, sometimes it was a, it was it was frustrating, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. Um, being the director of marketing at that time, for the, the for the two two and a half years that they, you were there, holding those three those three names under your, uh, with the team, uh, what's the one thing that you were the most uh, impressed or proud about when it came to uh, one thing that you created for marketing? Oh, geez. Um, you know, probably working with my team and, and getting back into the mode of like our fan club, you know, that was, that was one thing that we relaunched, um, there after a few years, you know, teams always go back and forth with that stuff. And sometimes it can be a, a tricky situation. I know early on in the AF two days in Spokane, you know, they had a great kind of, you know, booster club, more or less situation of, of, you know, rabid fans that came out and supported the players and helped out with stuff. But, you know, we, that was something that kind of faded away after a while. Um, you know, it takes some extra staff. It takes a lot of extra hours to manage those groups and, and things like that as well. So, you know, and working with, uh, you know, Crystal Medina, who is my, my community relations gal and went to college with her at Eastern Washington University and everything as, as well too. But working with her and relaunching that stuff, you know, we, we gave those, those folks in our fan club and our boosters some pretty unreal access. I mean, we did, you know, a potluck, you know, dinner at the offices slash facility once a week. You know, we brought wow. the player, you know, a player or two in and we, we sat down and had food with them and even front office individuals, too, and did Q&As and had that access and dissected things and did focus groups. And, you know, they got a lot of say in, in how things ran and, and what happened with the organization on the back end and, you know, what our planning and, and uh, marketing strategies were going to look like in the future, too. So I think that was one thing that, you know, reinvigorating that and relaunching that under, you know, my staff's um, you know, advisement and direction and stuff too was was a big thing and, and helped a lot. No, I, I'm sold. I don't live in Spokane and I'm sold. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. Okay, on the opposite side, your worst marketing idea <laughs> to you that you think that you think it may have, it may have gone well, but what to you? What do you think was your worst marketing idea? Or oh man, I, I don't know. Oof. Or something that didn't go as well as you thought it would. I mean, it doesn't have to be the. the you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, I guess, from a market. We kept it pretty simple in terms of our outbound stuff. I think, you know, it's probably more appropriate to share the the funny stories and in-game entertainment, you know, and things like that that people see. I think, um, you know, and Josh, you know, Josh Clayton and, yeah. and Don McMullen, my guys, too, will laugh. But, you know, proposals of the game, I think we were like – two for five or something oh wow you know over the course of like a three or four year period i mean like one it's a shocker that a lot of anytime you know and and you can get out there and get a sponsor to actually you know do a ring and do a proposal and that kind of stuff but you know we had a, a good sponsor crew that obviously was able to lock that in for a few seasons but it was not the most successful promotion. That's <laughs> so, embarrassing. Oh man, cringe, not for you. Cringe worthy, oh. you know, quick yeah, quick, quick, go to the next, go to the next oh my you know God. slides uh, sort of scrambles so those those kind of stories and stuff like that's probably the uh, the fun awkward embarrassing oh, you man. know quick promotion. cut cut to the kiss cam right away <laughs> yeah um so in 2012 on second here in 2012 so i mean you you're coming off you know you're coming off, uh, you know the team's coming off a, a 500 season um and you improves the team improves slightly in 2012. When it comes to 
what you did in player operations. What what's the one thing that you remember the most? Those that first season really taking on uh, that position as being part of player ops. Oh boy! Oh, and then, it's so what? My resume says 2012, 2013, somewhere in that range. 2014, yeah. Yeah, well, okay, 2014. So, um, most memorable. You know, it, I was really fortunate to step into that, you know, situation and, and certainly coming through the ranks in Spokane and, and getting to learn from, you know, Ryan Rigmaiden, who's still, you know, with the Canadian Football yeah. League and yeah. working with Winnipeg and everything else as well. You know, getting to learn, you know, the ropes from those guys and through the different coaches, you know, seeing the tail end of, of Keith and then being there during Andy's time as well. And um, and then at, after the AFL days with, with Shackelford, but even early on, you know, getting to learn from those guys and, and seeing that side of the house was was definitely a big, um, you know, a big boost and, and helped me a lot early on. I think, um, you know, I'm losing, I guess I, I lost track of your <laughs> question already. <laughs> I got so many memories spinning through my head here at the moment. I can imagine. I can imagine. It's it, it's. Um, was there ever a player? What, what what's one player that you remember the most that you may have had the, uh, the the most influence of getting to Spokane? How about that? Oh, geez. I mean, that would have been a little bit more in the later part. I mean, certainly. Okay. You know, my helping with the, the player operations side and getting those guys set up and things like that. I'm trying to think of one of the early guys. I mean there was that big transition period between myself and Rigmaid and then Andy working a lot of the player personnel stuff. And I was a little bit more of the operational support, but, um, I had, I had quite a few guys early on that I'll admit <laughs> that I got really excited about and I brought in and then I had to take the, the fun brunt conversation of who the heck is this guy from, you know, one of the coaches where I saw some flashes on film. So that was one of those fun learning experiences for sure. And having those conversations, yeah. um, I had a couple guys, though, that we brought in during time, you know, um, I think one of my early ones that I still, you know, and I followed after he left us, he didn't end up actually making our roster, but um, uh, Tyrone Laughing House was a guy that uh, we had brought in, and he played at St. Augustine with uh, Rory Nixon, um, our center and fullback at the time, but really good wideout. I was super excited to get him in there. He had some good reps with us on on workouts during the season, just didn't quite make uh, the cut, but ended up going on and, and having a great career in, um, you know, with which he played with Wichita Falls in the mm-hmm. indoor football league. He w- played with uh, Billy Beck also out in Carolina with, yep. the, with the Cobras. And, and he was a guy that, yeah, I enjoyed watching and, and had early on and certainly fun to, you know, see those guys at least go on and, and have a good career someplace else. How was the learning curve though? Getting up. Cause you know, you came in from a market, you know, from, from university coming with a marketing degree and, you know, now you, you're, direct, you're director of marketing, which, which I'm sure is what you were hoping to do, but you're part of communications and player ops now. How much of a learning, learning curve did it take for you to get every, to used to everything? Or was it because you did wear so many hats that you were able to pick things up quickly? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a help. Uh, just, you know, I usually refer to myself as a utility guy. I mean, I just do a lot of different things, and, and that's just always kind of how I've been. So that, that was definitely a big help. Um, you know, certainly the learning curve from the football perspective was a little interesting. I mean, you know, I had the background and obviously, you know, having played growing up and then a, a little bit of college, but following, you know, with it pretty strongly. Um, I think the biggest thing was, you know, again, the opportunity to sit, you know, next to a guy like Ryan, Ryan Rigmaiden, who then, you know, breaks down every position and mm-hmm. what we're looking for and what those what those specifics were. I mean, that was, uh, you know, a PhD education in arena football and, you know, a very short period of time. So definitely helped, you know, in, in my progression and, and what that meant over, you know, my future career. Okay. 
want to head. We're gonna. I want to head back at least to uh, to twenty eleven because I want to hear your 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 talk. Uh, your what your thoughts are about this because, um, you know, it being the Arena Football League. Um, you know, you usually, you know, the, the, usually where you play is in the name of the league in, you know, the name of the league itself, the arena football league, but the, the Spokane shock took it amongst themselves to do something that as far as I know, had not, not been done at all playing a complete, a game completely outdoors, you know, <laughs> unlike what was done in uh, Pittsburgh in the early days where the igloo was able to open up for most of the games back in the early days of the arena football league. Take us through what it took, and now I'm hoping you were involved in this quite a bit. But what, what, what was it? How much did it take to get to get this game up and going over Joe Alby Stadium to have that outdoor game? I, you know, to this day, you know, myself and the a few of the folks that I keep in regular touch with that were a part of that whole setup and event are still dumbfounded that we actually played that game. Uh, you know, the whole setup and process. I mean, we were there the entire week you know, leading up to it because with that outdoor setup and, you know, a lot of people didn't realize, I mean, we couldn't just come in and, you know, play on top of an outdoor field. So we actually had to bring in, you know, and I don't even know the exact square footage per se of a, of a football field, you know, or an arena football field, but we had to bring in all the plastic decking and then we had to bring the turf rolls in and get that set up. And then we had to bring in, you know, walls and figure out how we were going to get those things to stand up, which turned into more or less two by fours and two ton eco blocks getting dropped on the back of them, you know, with a forklift. And oh boy, um, it was just an absolute experience. I mean, we, we slept at that place over the course of that week, uh, you know, and, and getting everything set up and ready to go while, you know, thankfully in Eastern Washington, we have some beautiful summers and didn't have to worry about, you know, any rain necessarily coming through. Uh, but more or less, we're sleeping out there, crossing our fingers. There wasn't some, you know, random storm that came in. But, right. uh, yeah, it was an experience, um, you know, bringing cranes in to hold up those field goal or the rebound nets, yeah. you know, on either end of the field as well uh, was an experience. But we were literally setting those two-ton ego blocks, like, to hold the dasher walls up before the game. Really, when gates were opening. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <Man. laughs> you know, we're we're down there teetering these eco, you know, these eco blocks on a, on a forklift. And we got, you know, 10, 15 total guys out there between front office and intern, you know, putting this thing in place. And then five or six of us, you know, running and putting our shoulders into the dasher boards to make sure they're not going to slide or, you know, go someplace if a football player goes into it at full speed. So, so yeah, people, people, uh, you know, I'm glad they enjoyed the game. There's some great photos, some great footage. Uh, definitely something I will never do again. <laughs> <laughs> when um, when was it initially brought up and decided in the front office that this game was going to be played? Because everybody, I'm sure people will remember when it was announced. But was it talked about in 2010 when you first came in? Was it in the 2010 off season? When was the initial idea actually brought forth and basically said that we're going to be doing this in 2011. Yeah, they, they already had plans in place even when I got there in December 2010. So wow. they, they knew they were going to do it. I mean, I can recall, you know, I, after even after a few months of being there, you know, so late winter, early spring there at the start of the next season, I, I still kind of started, you know, trying to dabble in some of the graphic stuff and things like that. And so then at that point, I do, did recall you know, getting a hold of some of the Joe Albee Stadium like logos that were, you know, prepared and, and pretty much ready to go from a marketing perspective. So, yeah, they were 
they were locked and loaded. They, uh, they had their plan in place despite, you know, like I mentioned, we had to figure out a few things, you know, a little bit on the fly. But, you know, Lance Beck, a, a guy that, you know, oversaw a lot of that stuff from our game production standpoint, obviously did a great job and, you know, getting the people in the right places and had enough young, able, you know, college aged bodies out there to throw us around a, a football field for a week and, and get that thing set up and ready for a game. Did you at any time during the whole setup and leaning up to game time and stuff? I know I know you guys are probably watching, probably watching the weather forecast very intently. Um, did you personally wish that it would rain just to throw <laughs> a huge, not necessarily a wrench, but something very even more unique than what was being played on the field that night? Oh, you know, that that definitely would have been interesting. Um, the The funny part was, is that it did start raining at the after the game at the very, yeah at the very end we started getting a few little sprinkles and then basically once the game ended autographs were done people started clearing out it did start raining at the arena oh man <laughs> or at the stadium which was even worse because we essentially had to scramble to get that field rolled up before it turned into a giant sponge you know oh, yeah. and then soaked up all that water and turned into something we couldn't couldn't move at that point so joke was on us um i don't think i wished for it during the game i i really wanted just a, a smooth sailing nice experience which which we got and it was great uh and then after the game it, it bit us back one one last time was there ever a contingency plan put in place brian where you would have had to have gone back to this to this uh, to the arena man i I feel like we did talk about it, but with the weather outlook and everything like that, it was kind of one of those things like four or five days in advance. Again, we're, you know, fortunate on in Eastern Washington and that time of year, um, you know, very, very rarely do we get rain. So I think looking at the the thing, we, it was, it was discussed uh, as I recall, but not really a priority or something that we actually thought was going to happen. So. Yeah, that's good. But, but, but overall from, from what you said, I said you wouldn't want to do it again, but it's something that you will be able to, to check off on your, uh, on your life's list of things that you've done. Hey, absolutely. Well, and it, you know, it, it's still, you know, act, actually after that point, you know, continuing to work in obviously event management and sports and all that kind of stuff too. It was, uh, it was definitely a learning experience. So I think, you know, once you achieve something like that and the amount of hours and everything else that you put in to, to get it done, it uh, changes your perspective a little bit mm-hmm. and certainly makes things easier, you know, later on down the road when you have something come up like that. So. Oh, for sure. Was there any other uh, that you know of? Had they talked about doing a second game? Because I can't remember if they had talked about doing a second game the next year because it did go so well. Uh, well, it, it seemed because, I mean, you 17,000 uh, you know, which is the largest crowd for the Spokane Shock at that time. So it's was there talk of ever doing it again? Um, I feel like there was for about 30 seconds. After the game. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then and then the staff gave that look, you know, to ownership. Like, you know, that's a great idea. You should definitely go find someone to do that for you. So <laughs> uh, so I think it was a little it would have been probably a, a mild case of mutiny. Uh, had they attempted to to get us to relaunch that sucker a second season in a row? I'm sure you were as, as, while you were setting up, and then you you look down the line of what happened in in the history of sports. I guess it, <laughs> it, it makes you even think a little bit more. You have a lot more respect for how they set up, you know that that yearly NHL game outside or, or oh, whether it's you know, yeah. Canada or, or wherever they've been holding the Heritage Classic or or you know. So it's it gave you a little bit more respect. It, it was on a smaller scale, but still, as as you mentioned. It just wasn't a case of just plopping the field on another field. You had to basically 
pretend like it was uh, you're putting it putting it, the field down in the uh, in this in the arena. Yeah, any anywhere that you're creating your surface to play on in a remote location has has my respect. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, in August of 2014, you took on a, another job with the director of operations. Um, just something that came about that you said, you know what I'm interested in? Was it offered to you? How did you end up becoming the director of, director of ops? Yeah. So during that time, that was when, you know, John McMullen was still there handling the game operations. Uh, Tracy Malingo was our, our vice president at that time. Mm-hmm. So vice president, more or less, more or less team president, you know, handling the day-to-day operations and, and managing um, everything, you know, from an internal aspect. And so at that time, she basically brought John and I in and kind of split the organization, kind of internal, external, you know, at that point. And right. so I took over the operations, which really just meant operations, marketing, communications, football operations. Oh John handled, <laughs> you know, John handled promotions and, and game execution and, and helped out with the marketing stuff and things like that as well. We, you know, we were actually even roommates during that time you know, out in Spokane. So we were pretty much double team in the, the operation and handling the day to day business, you know, as a whole. So, wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, your team had just, so you, you jumped in, in the, in the off season of 2014. I mean, the, you, you've been four, 14 and four in 2013, you guys that were 11 and seven in 20 in 2014. Um, so, so you, you just, you basically changed position just right after the, the shocks lost to, uh, to San Jose, that year in 2014 um yep. as and i've asked other executives this before when it comes to being where you are in the organization how much how much do you pay attention obviously you're a huge part of it but when it comes to what happens on the field i mean you're doing so much you're so invested do being say you versus being you as a fan how much do the wins and losses differ from you being in the head office versus say, if you had been a fan? Ooh, I mean, for, for me, not much. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was pretty important. I mean, and certainly I think, you know, as those years went on and, and we, you know, had the continued success, it was, it was almost a requirement you know, was the tough part in Spokane in particular because they had so much success early on and, and maintain that level, you know, from the AF2 into the AFL. And, you know, even those, you know, those records that you talk about and even that season, you know, we went 500, you know, and everything as well. Mm-hmm. You go back through and you look at the schedule and the divisions, you know, and everything mm-hmm. else. And every single year we were right in the thick of it. I mean, we were, you know, one of those top teams uh, competing. But if we were number two or we were number three, you know, it didn't really matter what side, you know, of the ball you're on per se fan or, or player slash front office staff member. Um, you know, it was pretty important and, and people scrutinized and, and got a little worried and, and ticket conversations got different sponsor conversations got different. Um, so, you know, maintaining that was, was extremely stressful and, and certainly, uh, weighed, I think equally, you know, no matter which side I looked at it or, or what perspective I looked at it from, from, you know, Internally speaking, yeah. Now, look, looking at how the the team drew for those last couple of years, uh, as when the shock were still the shock, um, did you, did it did you ever get a lot harder to draw fans in? Because uh, you know you were going from obviously seventy percent fill right at, at the very beginning because of season tickets, but it seemed to be that it tailed off when it came to attendance slightly. You weren't drawing your tens anymore. You were drawing around. Around eight, eight, three, eight, six, whatever it may have been, and, and you would peak. I'm sure when a a, a major uh, rival would come in. 
Do, do you think that it's because of how well the team was doing? Or do you think, because, you know, Spokane does have some other minor league teams. Do you think that there was uh, something that was uh, why fans were not coming out, even though you guys were being so successful? Yeah, after after that first transition and then within a few years there, essentially, I think, uh, you know, in this market, it just became like a ticket price, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we had, you know, increased costs, you know, from the league affiliation standpoint. And, the, and when we made the change from the AF2 to the AFL and then, you know, medical workers comp, all those different, you know, elements mm-hmm. on the back end, the, those, you know, you, you don't balance out on those costs. They, they continuously go up over the course of, you know, business, businesses, you know, operations. So, you know, those different things impacting and, and then the increase in ticket sales, I think ultimately was you know, what made it a little bit more challenging for us to get those folks in. Yeah. Uh, so we, we played with stuff over time and, you know, that was even a, a, an early on decision and uh, as part of the transition and such, but uh, you know, those were a little bit more of the key factors, I think, but you're right though, too. I mean, we weren't the only ticket in town, um, you know, certainly there in the spring and, and other stuff going on, you know, with uh, chiefs hockey and, yep. you know, the, and the baseball team, and, you know, the Indians out here and, and stuff as well. So, um, definitely made it, you know, challenging at times just depending on when the schedule was and, and what occurred. But, uh, you know, factors came into play and we weren't the the hot new ticket in town per se anymore. So, you know, we had to get a little more creative and uh, expand some sales, you know, efforts and do some different stuff from the promotion side to, you know, keep those folks coming back and, and try to convert those those individuals back to season tickets. Now, being director of operations, obviously, you're going to be, you know, you're going to help develop the, the profit loss and expenses, the budgets and stuff like that. Um obviously when it comes to the AFL there, there were some teams that were not pulling their weight and such. Um, how was it when it came to the extra costs that may have been incurred, that may have been crewed by the shock just in order to prop up uh, X, X, Y, or Z team? I mean, it's, it, it, I'm sure it did happen, but uh, how did you being in the, you know, being in the head office, how were you able to deal with stuff like that? <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's a little bit of a tough one to answer because certainly, yeah, I, I remember getting, you know, those invoices from the league office to, you know, cut an extra six digit check, you know, to split, wow. the, <laughs> you know, split the expenses, you know, between the teams to, yeah, to handle them through the end of the year. So certainly, certainly a difficult situation. Um, I don't think, I don't think from a front office perspective, you know, just with the way, the way that I know a lot of these teams, you know, operated from just a structure perspective. Right. I don't think from a, from a, director operations, general manager, team president standpoint, you ever really get used to that. (laughs) And and it was, it was definitely something where you get that invoice and you immediately, you know, and and myself at that time, I mean, shoot, we're talking 2014, 2015. I mean, I'm, I was a 27, 28 year old, you know, general manager kind of learning a little bit of this stuff on the fly. So I'm getting that invoice and then turning around and calling my owner saying, how do you want me to handle this? (laughs) Where, where do I put this, you know, in, in my budget, you know, sort of thing. And, um, definitely makes those conversations interesting to say the least. How, well, how was Brady Nelson as an owner? And, and you know, you're just mentioning there, you had, you had to call and basically say, uh, well, Brady, how are we going to do this? When obviously from, it seemed from day one that Brady was so invested and you could tell, I think he was a huge cheerleader, not only for the league when, when he came in, but for the, for the shock themselves. Um, for those who do not know about Brady Nelson, I mean, how would you, how would you categorize him? You know, Brady was a master of promotion and creative. I mean, he just had this natural understanding and knack of like 
how things needed to look, how they needed to be presented, what that timing needed to be. You know, he was he was a showman, you know, in in, uh, in some capacity in terms of just his understanding from that presentation and, you know, execu- execution side of the house. So, you know, beyond what he did with the football, you know, a lot of people don't realize, too, he actually had a, an MMA uh, league more or less or showcase that he ran on the side as well. And so yeah. there were even a, a few different events that we ran at the shock practice facility where we were doing MMA events on, you know, Friday night, you know, sort of gig and, and throwing a, a cage down on our practice, you know, field sort of thing, rolling that up and then throwing a cage down and kind of, and doing some fun stuff. But um, yeah, Brady was great. I mean, he was always, you know, sales oriented and, and generating those ideas, certainly putting together sponsor packages and things like that and learning that set of the house from him early on was huge. Um, so, you know, he was a big impact on, on those different areas, certainly for the team. Most of the checks that I'm referring to, though, just just for clarity purposes, sure, sure. was when, when Notter, you know, took over the team. So actually, oh, in okay. 2013, there was a little bit of a buy-in with Ryan Gee and Notter Nahini. And then after that, you know, it turned in 2014, 2015, it turned into a, a owner or Notter taking over the majority. That's ownership. true. I, I forgot so, about that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so he was the one that I was working with a little bit more directly in terms of operations and, and when I was general manager of the team. And, and during those interesting times when uh, so ref or, you know, said referenced uh, yeah. checks needed to be cleared and where those needed to be coming from. So Okay. Well, it, it, then it begs the question when it comes to Brady versus Notter, when it came to having to... Uh, when when it came to having to dole out more money, which which is basically what it is, and uh, who was which owner, in your opinion, um, was I don't want to say easier to get the money out of because that that sounds crude, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Which, which owner <laughs> was it was say okay, give it to me, I'll write the check. You know, in your opinion, which one was uh, easier to get the money out of? Oh, <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, I mean you money's know, money. Opinion, I get you know, it. Most of my experience was with Nodder. I mean, I, you know, when when Brady was running the team and handling that, you know, they, they are two. I mean, they're polar opposites okay. in terms of business operations and, you know, <laughs> mindset and communication styles, you know, and all those different things. I mean, two, two very, very different people. Um, you know, I know. I think a lot of the success early on, I mean, the organization and, and even myself, you know, joining the team and being young, but then looking, I, I can look back now and, you know, pretty easily put two and two together in terms of understanding probably what their, you know, revenues and things like that looked like from 2006 to 2009. And then, you know, even that 2010 season, you know, in 11 and 12 having success, you know, from a ticket sales standpoint and such. So I think, you know, there's probably a few less checks early on, you know, going out and, and when they made that transition during a few of those key years in, in 10, 11, 12, 13. But, um, you know, Nodder was a little bit more invested, I think, at the league level. Okay. Um, he got involved and, and wanted to be, you know, kind of a part of those different committees and things like that, which was which was exciting from a, you know, staff standpoint, just being able to, you know, obviously intertwine with that and learn some additional areas, you know, at the, from the league perspective beyond individual departments. Um, and so I, I think he was a little more invested in some areas. And, and so while he didn't certainly didn't enjoy cutting certain checks to particularly prop up teams that, yeah. you know, decided to make an early exit, um, you know, I think he was a little bit more willing and a little bit it was a little bit easier conversation usually, uh, you know, to get that past him and, and cleared through. So, yeah, I can imagine now. The Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. 
Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash AF Hall of Fame to join. I, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, it, it, there's, there was a huge difference in 2014 versus 2015 for, for the for the shock. Uh, one, one of the big things is losing a guy who I'm sure was very well known and loved in the city and Eric Meyer. You know, you being a part of the, um, you know, the director of operations, um, how obviously everybody remembers how the when it came. There, there really are no long term, technically not long term contracts in the Arena Football League. Later on in the years, they, they, it was single-year contracts, etc. Um, how tough was it losing Eric Meyer and then having to decide on, on who was going to be, the, and I uh, being the starting quarterback? Yeah, that was that was really hard. I mean, obviously, especially for you know at that time with Andy Olson being the coach and, and working with Eric, and you know Andy's a extremely you know bright you know, play caller and, and very sophisticated in, in things as well in the football field. And so those two had a great relationship and obviously had a lot of success, you know, and, and Eric, Eric Meyer just had this, you know, natural knack, you know, e-money was as exciting, you know, to watch on the field as he was to be around off the field, just from a, you know, pure entertainment and character standpoint. But, um, you know, it was, it was certainly tough. And, and we, unfortunately in Spokane, we, we kind of developed some thick skin for it though. Right. I mean, right. we, saw that year to year i think uh the conversation you know more times than not was you know the the younger stepchild you know up in spokane and mm-hmm. we went and found some great talent over the years and usually you would see those guys ending up on a different roster within you know two to three seasons and you know certain teams um will just had a little bit more influence i'll, I'll say um than what <laughs> we were uh, we were capable or willing to do from you know certain areas of the uh, of the budget so yes. that's kind of what it was so. that's that that's a very good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I did. Was it sort of a craw though? When you know Eric goes to San Jose and he wins the championship, that doesn't that oh, sort yeah. of really put? A, I would hopefully it lights a fire under your ass as an organization saying, "Wait a minute." Oh, hundred percent. I mean, and I knew it well before that, still too. But um, yeah, that, that was not a good thing. I mean, next thing you know, you got Eric Meyer there, you got Adrian Tanell there. You know, who always had a great career with us as well. I mean, uh, beyond other, you know, names that I can go through. But, um, yeah, that one, that one hurt. And, you know, Eric being a, a hometown guy and stuff like that as well, obviously playing at Eastern Washington University. And um, the success that he had there was, uh, you know, helped our, you know, model here in Spokane. But, um, but yeah, tough to watch, no doubt. I'm sure. And obviously to also with, with the shock in 2015, too, it, uh, you know, with the team ending up going 7-11, and 11, I think what most people need to remember too is that you you basically had six signal callers that year. You, you know, you had Eric Meyer, who was who was you know, he got injured in later years, mind you, but you ended up having six guys and some pretty big names in in the AFL. I mean, you can't Warren Smith, Arvell Nelson, you know Dan, uh, Carson Kaufman, Danny Southwick, uh, Jarrett Brown, and Matt Bissiner. That must have, I mean, for you being the director of odds, how hard is it just to go through all those quarterbacks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, 
you know, and, and supporting Andy as he was bringing guys in and, and working through those different quarterbacks. I mean, you remind me some names. I, I kind of forgot a little bit. And now that I'm thinking about it, just how much success. And I, I just saw Danny Southwick get signed by the New Jersey team in a lower league. I, yep. I, think, him, I think him and Warren Smith both are, are still that's, playing. That's correct, yeah. You know, an article would be too if uh, if the league were still around here at this point. But uh, yeah, it was tough. Um, you know, I got I got real confused on hotel you know um, itineraries and getting people set up in rooms. And this, uh, I, I think we had to find a few extra apartments that year due to some injuries and you know getting guys set up and, and taking care for the season to say the least. Yeah. Now, for those who who may not know, can you give us an idea what it is like when a player does get hurt and you have to bring somebody else in? Are you able to give a, the Cliff Notes version of? of of what you need to do as a director of operations in order to make sure that this player is here on time in Spokane and he is ready to, to come on in the field and practice. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, you know, you, I guess not obviously, but situation, you, you get an injury during a game, you know, you know you're going to have to replace the position. Um, typically, you have some sort of short list, more mm-hmm. or less, you know, hopefully a few of the guys from camp that didn't get picked up someplace else that, you know, at least have had a few weeks in the system and can come in and, you know, fill a gap, you know, maybe while you continue to look for somebody else if it doesn't work out. But um, more or less, if that happens during the game and, and like it even did, you know, with Eric getting hurt when we were down in um, down in L.A. playing the kiss and broke his collarbone, you know, coach looks at you and um, and says, Hey, we need a quarterback on Monday, you know, and, and we're playing there on a Saturday. So, you know, you're instantly on the phone more or less and, and short version, um, figuring out, you know, when can they get on a flight, get that booked for them as quickly as you can get them into town, into the hotel and, and pretty much they're suited up, ready to go, you know, by the time coaches in the office on Monday and, and start an install for the coming weeks. So it's a, more or less kind of like booking an emergency flight for a family member and, and trying to get them, you know, into town as quickly as possible. In that type of circumstance, um, uh, how does money work into the equation? Obviously there, there is, there is no cap in the arena football league. Um, but how does money work in, in, in this circumstance? Is it, you're going to get paid the league minimum or depending on who the name is when we're, say we're talking about another quarterback, does it matter who the person is or is there a, was there a set limit that you could go to? Was there any negotiating or was it just a matter of, yes, we need you. Here's what we can offer. Will you play for us? Yeah. Um, I'll laugh when I say it depends what team you were going to go play for. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, there was, there were set, you know, numbers. I mean, there wasn't really any negotiation to be had based on the contracts. You know, you were, you were getting a certain amount of money depending on, you know, years of experience and it shuffled back and forth. Mm-hmm. I feel like we, we had two different CBAs when I was in the arena football league. And so there was a little bit of adjustment with quarterback pay at one point, them getting, yeah. you know, 1200 a game versus other positions getting 800 a game. And, and then I know we toyed around with like rookie was, you know, 700 and right. vet did earn up to, I think it was 850 or something along those lines. And so, um, so yeah, some negotiation, things like that really wasn't a part of the process. You know, technically speaking, if I remember correctly, between mm-hmm. the Arena Football League and the Indoor Football League, teams technically weren't even supposed to pay for like travel for guys and things like that, though, as well. Typically, it was on the player and his agent if he was involved to get that guy there. Right. Um, you know, I think it was a little bit of a loose rule, obviously. I mean, I just admitted that I bought, you know, plenty of guys playing tickets in order to get them there to play, you know, right. sort of game. Um, just kind of came down to the team. And I think it was a little bit of a underlining understanding that we took care of some of those other, you know, extra little travel bills and things like that for those players, knowing they weren't making a whole lot of money. So. 
Is there ever at any point where there was a case where you guys wanted to sign a player and the league office said no? Ooh. Um, you know... I mean, because remember, the league did claim that it was a single entity, you know, that they, right. they signed all the contracts, et cetera. So I just, I just felt that the, the question should at least be asked because I... Did, we're, you know, we're, we're curious to know. Yeah, I. <laughs> so there's a tricky way to answer this. Oh, trick away. <laughs> I guess. Um, n- the league never told me I couldn't sign anyone. Okay. If if there was an individual that I went to sign that maybe had a history for mm-hmm. one reason or another, yeah, um, that would raise a red flag if there were to be like some sort of shared database, you know, sort of thing. I then, understand. Yeah then someone from the league level would probably say, hey, you may want to think about this a little bit longer, you know, type gig. Um, of course, I didn't have to do necessarily with medical and things like that. More right, often, right. it was more of a character and experience or, you know, something, a bad exit from, you know, a prior organization. Right. Is there any, was there a case where Coach Olsen just said, screw that and sign in many ways? Or were you guys very open to what the league was telling you? Or did you... Kind of, or would you have taken it as an ultimatum from the league to basically <laughs> say stay away? Yeah, um, there were plenty of situations where we <laughs> had an extended conversation with individuals to learn a little bit more and ask them directly. And then if they, you know, cleared that situation, then it was usually like, yeah, let's bring him in and see how he does. And if we need to get rid of him, we can. So okay, so vetting. So basically, the league said something, and you would have to vet the player yeah. even, even. I mean, more you too. can imagine. I mean, you, yeah. you covered the Arena Football League long enough. You mm-hmm. saw how you know journeymen, for oh, lack yeah. of a better word, with with guys that. You know, would just re-emerge out of nowhere and sign with you know teams over and over and over again. And next thing you know, you got these receivers that have been playing for eight, nine, ten years. You know, sort of gig and had plenty of uh, red tape. You know, more or less when it came to you know an injury you know situation. Yeah. But teams were willing to willing to roll the dice and see what happened. Yeah, but you know that, that never happened only in the playoffs. Um, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Uh, was there a, a, a point at any time for somebody that you may have reached out to Coach Olsen about and um, uh, the players said no? Ooh. Be- because obviously, as you said, there were some teams were able to do certain things differently uh, by certain means. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, just overall, do you remember of a partic- particular player that you guys were really interested in and then just it, he just said it didn't necessarily mean that he, he ended up in another team at another team, but he just said, no, thanks, but no, thanks. You know, I don't, I don't think we did. I, I really can't. I honestly cannot think of a conversation where I had with a guy where he wasn't at least interested. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never outright turned down. I think other than like you mentioned uh, more so just the competition factor in trying to get somebody there. And there was already a better deal on the table um, why there was a better deal, I'm not sure, because they should have all been the same, is what I was told. But, yeah. uh, you know, it happened. It just was part of the process. Well, that, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, it, it, there were rumors that certain teams were were had more means than others, as we keep alluding to, without actually saying it. And anybody, anybody who's listening to this podcast and, and, and knows the, the league, they know <laughs> what we're talking about with us out, without us actually making an, a statement. Not an accusation, a statement. Um, how did how did you feel? You've been in the league for for such a, a long period of time at that point, you know. You know, and 
you'd seen what had, what had happened. You know, everybody had thought, even though there was a CBA in place, and it stated that, you know, starters were going to get this. If you're a backup, you're going to get this. Rookies, per diems, et cetera, et cetera. How frustrating was it for you as a head, as a, as a, as an organization to know that there was a free agent that came, that you guys were seriously looking at, and then you were outbid by the almighty dollar? Yeah, I think there's, there were two ways that I think I had to look at it, you know, obviously from an organizational standpoint and things frustrating. I mean, you, you kind of look at it as, or, or feel like we're all competing in the same league. We all sign the same agreement, you know, we should be able to uphold those, you know, rules, standards, whatever they may be and operate at the same level. Um, that would be a, a pretty, you know, standard or I guess baseline ethical, you know, sort of conversation. I think from the other side though, too, as, as frustrating as it was being on the football slash operation side and, and also being a younger you know, person too working in the organization and, and shoot my whole, my whole staff was younger, but, yeah. um, you know, working with these guys and being relatively close to the players, you know, in age and things too, we got frustrated, but you also just kind of accepted it. I mean, <laughs> of course you used it as a competition, like, okay, let's just go find the next guy, you know, sort of gig. It, it did become a recurring piece. You know, it felt like where our guys ended up with these other teams after, like I mentioned earlier, a couple of seasons and, mm-hmm. you know, playing someplace else. And it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't anything to do with the organization. It was just something else. But, um, you know, that was certainly tough to wade through a little bit, but you had to understand that the, you know, players are just trying to make money. And so, you know, being a younger person, um, and being on the football side, you got upset with the team, but you didn't necessarily get upset with the player and, you know, usually wish them the best and said, Hey, I, I don't blame you. I'd, I'd take it too. So go ahead and we'll see you in the playoffs. Right. Now, what about, what about the, the, the league head office? I mean, where, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they're promoting, as I said, it's a single entity league. We're all here together. We're, you know, we're all here as one giant league. We're here to, you know, we want to have great, uh, great games and, and put on a great show for everybody. Did at any point, was there any reason, would you have complained? Did, was, did, the, did you express your frustration to the front office or was it a matter of, uh, there's no real reason, reason to complain because you knew what the answer was going to be. <laughs> yeah, definitely the latter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't think of too many conversations I had with the league. I mean, you know, they're more or less their ability to stay, you know, out of that conversation. You know, because they were single entity is is technically they were cutting the players' checks. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, all the payroll systems, everything went through the league office. They were employed through the league office. They received the players received their checks. So, you know, basically, as far as the league knew that. This is exactly what, you know, player Joe Smith received this week because that's what we paid him. We don't know what you're talking about with, you know, other money or extras. Yeah. Yeah. Um, big change for the for the franchise and for you guys at the end of 2015. Um, and this is a story I'm sure that many not know about. And I hope you're, you I hope this is one you can get some inside information about. Um, it, it is decided that the that the shock organization is going to be leaving the arena football league and going to be leaving for the, uh, for the indoor football league. And they obviously they will become the rebranding because of certain situations. I hope we can get to, uh, from the shock to the empire. At what point Ryan was it decided or had been talked about for a while, um, that 
the ownership was was going to be bringing the team out of the AFL to the IFL. Yeah, so you know, as that season, the 2015 season, you know, started winding down. Um, you know, Nodder had been then owning the team and operating for a couple years, three years, you know, more or less between the ownership transition and the taking over majority control. Um, so, you know, once we got toward that end of the season, we just, you know, looking at the numbers and where we were going to end up, you know, based on attendance and everything else that was kind of occurring. And then looking at, you know, commitments for the upcoming year and what was going to happen with the Arena Football League, et cetera. Um, we, we had to start having those conversations just from a, a business, you know, sustainability, um, you know, to put it blunt, you know, the AFL is just too damn expensive. I mean, between from the single entity perspective and, you know, paying into a, a league wide workers comp, you know, that had to be based at Illinois in order to cover, you know, teams that weren't able to acquire workers comp within their states, like those teams in Florida and then California, you know, uh, the Sabercats were, you know, grandfathered in and, you know, some other stuff too. But, um, yeah, we just we just couldn't make the numbers work. And so once we got through that 2015 season, it was more or less down to we either make this jump or, you know, we we consider the prospect of going dormant or taking a year off or maybe even not playing, you know, just because we couldn't make the numbers, you know, sit upright more or less. Yeah. So, yeah, we just had to make the call. And, and that was uh, uh, the singular factor was just a, a business model and, and uh, really – you know, red and black sort of situation. Right. Um, for those, and I, I'm, I'm curious to know, cause I, I, I don't know these numbers and I'm hoping you can shed some light when it came to league dues for AFL versus the IFL. What was the difference in, in the uh, actual amount, man? Um, approximately if you don't know for sure. Well, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to reference exactly what the indoor football league dues are just because obviously they're continuing to operate and things like that. I'll, I'll tell you that, I, my operational budget, like what I was running off of, and, and this was everything. I mean, not only front office, but obviously rents, arenas, putting on the show, promotions, marketing, you know, league dues, medical, you name it, whatever. Um, when I moved from the Arena Football League to the Indoor Football League, I cut $1.7 million out of my operational budget. Wow. And yeah. obviously for minor, minor league football that, or a minor league sport, it, that, that's, that's a huge chunk of change. Huge chunk of change, yeah. So I was having a hard time there at the tail end of the, the AFL shock. I was having a hard time getting us to, you know, get below $2.7, $2.8 million a year. And then transitioning to the indoor football league in our first season and taking into account, you know, we had to do some asset purchases and the rebrand and some new buy and merch buy and all that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I dropped it down to a high end of 1.2. Wow. That, wow. That's <laughs> which is, yeah, which is manageable, which is doable. I yeah. mean, I think for a lot of these teams out there and, you know, speaking as indoor football as a whole, I think that's one thing that they got right, you know, is is that business model and that concept. Granted, of course, you know, you're, you're not able to pay pay the players quite as much, but we also structure things differently. And I think they have a little bit of a better, you know, model in that regard. Obviously, the, the union was a in a way in a few for a few years, it was a, a, a thorn in the side of the, of the teams and, and league. But we understand why the union is there um, and, you know, for the players, and stuff like that. Um in your opinion, how much do you think that the players' union uh, how more did they cause more problems than 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 it hurt the team itself? Because, you know, as you said, the salaries increased when the new CBA came in, came to account, but yet it also kept the uh, the type of player, it kept the play 
like everybody knew when it came to the AFL as being the top tier of uh, of uh, of play in all the indoor leagues. Yeah. Well, so okay, ask your question. Well, how do you do you feel that that the that the players associated in your time there that they, okay. the players union help or hindered the team itself? Hindered, hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, that was a very difficult, you know, situation. And like you mentioned, it was definitely challenging. Um, yeah. I think the biggest issue that we bumped into, you know, was the players just weren't educated. Um, you know, the the union had some very strange opt-in, you know, rules or bylaws essentially as a part of their membership where, mm-hmm. you know, players were automatically, you know, members unless mm-hmm. they opted out, you know, but then when it came to like voting situations and getting stuff through, you know, a, a no vote was a yes vote, no vote meaning like not present, you know, sort oh, of thing. Okay. It, was, okay. it was a yes vote instead of a, you know, uh, an abstain or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah, it wasn't an abstention. It was like it went somewhere to the positive or something to that extent. So there was just some, you know, we had to hear all the nightmare stories, of course, because players would then come to me and ask, you know, why why do I have this taken out of my paycheck? Why, you know, what's this fee? What? <laughs> and I just had to look at them and say, you know, you're going to have to talk to your union rep. I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't control that. Um, so it was, it was frustrating and lack of education. Um, I think it was a weird – union versus owners, you know, sort of mentality where for, oh, some, always. for some reason the union thought uh, owners and front office and all these people were getting rich off owning and running arena football league teams, um, which I can absolutely tell you was not the case. So it was just, yeah, a constant battle back and forth. What You just gotten in, into the league at the time, uh, you know, with the shock itself. And then, you know, the 25th anniversary pops up in 2012 and then you have <laughs> – you you basically had the the what I think what people are dubbing the uh, uh, the the Olive Garden game between you know Pittsburgh and Orlando national television and you have Scrubs playing on the game on the field. <laughs> Do you remember what what you were thinking at that time? I mean, I, I know you're you're at the time you were quite new with the team itself, but I mean, do you remember what you thought at that point? What, yeah, what you what, what, um, we getting we were, into? <laughs> Yeah, we were watching that and, you know, I can't say we weren't laughing a little bit, you know, in the situation just at how, you know, seemingly absurd it was. Um, you know, Kyle Rowley was a part of that whole process. Mm-hmm. Obviously, had played in Spokane and, and won a championship here and things like that as well. And so we knew Kyle and, you know, I didn't know him super well personally. And so I'm not speaking, you know, in this way as a, a personal right. bit, but I was around him enough to know, you know, his mentality and his, you know, nature in terms of when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Um, so yeah, we were sitting back watching that whole thing, wondering what the heck was going on. And, um, I think we pulled our team in and had that conversation in terms of, you know, here's what's happening, you know, and it's now, you know, we're up next, you know, sort of gig and, and more or less our guys kind of gave us that look and that thumbs up, like, no, we're, we're playing. (laughs) I'm like, don't you worry about that, you know, sort of gig. So, so yeah, it was interesting though. That's for sure. Um, a little, little bit of a fright, you know, factor for some teams out there, but I, I can imagine. Um, what was um, what was the fan base's thought when you guys were, were saying that you were going to move from the AFL? Because for for some, and I'll give an example of you know the Albany Firebirds, um, them leaving for in Indianapolis uh, in, in two thousand, and them switching to AF two just the next year. We saw how 
how the fan base did not take it very well and, and you know, show that by not showing up. Um, when you guys thought you were, when you were thinking of moving, did you speak with the fan base in any way? Um, did you have focus groups to try to say what they would think about it? Or were you just trying to keep it in-house, so to speak, until you actually made the decision and then take it from there? Yeah, we, you know, we, we kept it internal as long as we possibly could. Um, you know, obviously looking at the numbers and trying to figure out, and, and a lot of those conversations were going down to the wire. I mean, we were, you know, I think the last game of our season, then we were down in Arizona right. uh, or less. And so, yeah, we were, we were trying to stretch that out. We didn't want it to necessarily get public. Um, you know, I was having conversations on the back end with folks just in terms of kind of getting that baseline understanding and, you know, and that included people here in the community that I trusted and knew I could, you know, sit down with and, and kind of get their feelings on, you know, what they thought this was going to mean exactly. Um, so yeah, we, we tried to keep it hush as long as we could once it broke. I mean, it, and it actually did more or less get announced during our game in Arizona. Oh boy, God. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. Uh, because then, you know, players get into the locker room after the game and we had lost that game. So, so tempers were already starting to flare and then they caught wind of that. And they had caught wind really, you know, within minutes of getting back to their, you know, lockers and looking at their phones so by the time i was upstairs finishing up you know email press release posting to the website by the time i got downstairs i walked in the room and i just felt like this cold glare you know from about every corner of that place yeah and it got put on me like more or less so that that was a fun not fun uh conversation uh, bus ride and flight home. Shoes. I can imagine. What was was the information leaked, Ryan? Did somebody leak it? Um, or was it did somebody somebody in yeah. the press jump the gun? I'm trying to remember who it was. I feel like there was a tweet. I think someone from the press jumped the gun. I think they held on to it as long as they could, and then it finally got out. If I remember correctly. Okay. So. Not blaming anybody. It was what. No, 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 no. It was no, going to no. happen sooner or later, but yeah. happened at the worst possible time. I will reiterate um, that. At this, at this point, obviously, your career in the AFL has ended, and you moved on to, and you did some some very good things in the IFL. Um, what What's the one memory that you're going to take away the most from your career in the AFL? Oh man, I don't know if I can take one. I mean, there's so many. I, Worked with a lot of really good folks, um, you know, being able to travel around. And and I think, you know, eventually when I'm able to do that podcast or book that we talked about earlier and stuff, too. I mean, I was a mid-20s, you know, something working at the executive level for, a, you know, professional sports team, traveling to different, you know, cities for road games every weekend, you know, that we weren't home for six months out of the year and, you know, having a pretty good time. So, it's uh, it's difficult for me to probably pick out one moment um, that I would say was probably like my most fun or, or most memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I got a whole series that's about to get you know slowly released on something like that. Give us give us the teeth of just one, and that pops into your head. Oh, jeez. Besides, besides the besides the game outside. Well, I think uh, I think it was my first season actually in 2011, and we had. I'm trying to think. That was. The Kyle Rowley, wasn't it the Kyle Rowley touchdown in the middle of the end zone against the Sabercats over the back of the end zone? I'm trying to think of the receiver that caught the ball. 
gigantic hands. Um, he went on and, and played for a few other teams too. Is was it Heinz? I have to think. Um, I think well, my first season, more or okay. less, we beat San Jose. I'm pretty sure I'm talking about the right game. Uh, caught the ball over the back of the end zone. I was actually up in the ticket booth, more or less, watching on a on a prompter um, in, in the customer service area. Saw that happen, and just the that was like a gigantic win for the team. My first season there to feel like that electricity. Uh, you know, in the building and, and that, you know, just that roar of the crowd that we felt, you know, obviously throughout the entire place w- was pretty special. And then um, Randy Himes, by the way, Randy Himes. There you go. Yeah, I was close. There you go. Um, so, yeah, having that happen, though, and, and then going out with the team afterward and, you know, hanging out and, and learning a little bit more, obviously, about the the fun side of it, you know, after uh, toward the end of that first season. I think that was something pretty special for me and really getting my career started and, and kind of capping off that first season and and ultimately, uh, you know, led to some pretty cool things down the road, too. Any regrets at all? Um, plenty. Obviously, obviously, I said you went on to bigger and better things in the IFL, but any any AFL regrets? Any AFL regrets? Oh, probably a, a few onside kick attempts that we made against Arizona and, and San Jose <laughs> there. But um, I don't think so. I think you know. I, I think it for it was it would be more of a personal thing for me, like right. going back to the Arena Football League. I think it would have been cool if I wouldn't wouldn't worked for another team. Like to be honest, like just to to jump someplace else. You know, I did. Obviously, a number of years in Spokane between the Arena Football League and the Indoor Football League. I think, right. you know, and, and it was my it was my plan actually. Every two or three years, I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and said, "Okay, this is going to be my last year, and I'm going to go do something else," you know, sort of gig. But I was just presented with such great opportunities, you know, seemingly every year in Spokane to move up and do something different um, that it was hard to you know let go of and, and go do something else. So, um, but yeah, I think I, I would have probably gone and, and tried to work for somebody else, um, you know, just to get that experience, different city, see it from a different side of things. And, um, and yeah, start someplace uh, a little bit more ground up versus, um, you know, obviously inheriting, I feel like a great situation in Spokane right. and what they had built and, and things like that in the past. Granted, I got my lumps later in my career because then I went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa and right. San Diego and some other you know places that I had to uh, more or less restart an organization. So that was definitely the other side of it. Did any team ever in the AFL come to you and offer you something? I t- yeah, I talked to a few different teams like, you know, off and on. I, I had a good relationship with uh, with Joe down in Arizona and mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I talked with New Orleans a little bit, too. You know, they were kind of back and forth. And, and Pat O'Hara and I had a few conversations when they were looking at, you know, coming back at one point and doing some stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, I had good contacts around the league and, and some great folks that I worked with. Um, two that you know always kind of kept their ears open for me, and but uh, but yeah, it's what it is. Would you ever gone to the head office? Yeah, oh yeah, I think that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Joe, I know Joe Kleinsmith, you know, probably fielded more calls than any of us, you know, just from a <laughs> player perspective and coaches yep. and everything else, too. So, you know, later, even though you know, we had our own back and forth, you know, plenty. You know, when we were on, you know, opposing sides of the desk in a manner of speaking based on positions early on, I think later in my career, I you know, gained more respect for those people as you look back, just having a better understanding of what it was that, you know, they did on a daily basis and, and more than anything, what they put up with, you know, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any, any memento? Oh, actually, did you have a, a, a regret? Did you ever get a play in, in the coach's playbook? <laughs> oh, you know, I didn't. I, 
<laughs> learning, learning arena ball and things like that. I mean, even even for myself, being a, a former quarterback and, and a, a football guy and stuff like that too. Tell you what, my my head was spinning when we were sitting there trying to do those playbooks. Like my yeah. first season, I mean, just learning the different ins and outs, and you know, it was it was certainly fascinating. There's a lot of concepts there and, and things. I think indoor football for me is a little bit easier, even just from mm-hmm. the coaching perspective, just because yeah. there's a little more outdoor, you know, related elements to it. Um, so yeah, didn't get, didn't get a play with, or a play in uh, Andy's playbook. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, down the road was able to, you know, work on a few things. Your most memorable piece of memorabilia besides uh-huh. the play, besides the playbook. I think I, I mean, I pretty much have a football from every season. Um, I do it. I do my own Jersey for each team that I work with and, nice. and the year concept. So I do have, I think I have a, I think I did a blue shock jersey. I think we when we did that relook, kind of like the the gladiators had with the the sideways and stuff. Actually, they pretty much duplicated the jerseys these days. So, um, so yeah, I got a shock jersey though. That's probably one of my my key pieces. Cool. Um, somebody comes up to you in say five to seven years. Um, they know you were involved with the with the AFL. Um, the league is not still around. We'll say the league it never has never come back. Um, and somebody says to you, well, can you can you tell them, you know, Ryan, what would you say about the AFL? I, I've never heard heard about it. Can you tell me about it? What would you tell this fan? <laughs> well, you know, I use a I use a, a phrase or a saying even with indoor football as well. Uh, but when I'm trying to explain arena football. And I use it generally, arena generally in that matter. When I'm trying to explain it to someone that's never seen it before, but maybe they yeah. at least have some sports and live experience, I tell them it's it's fo- football on a hockey rink with basketball scoring at a WWE event. I see. Okay. I never heard it put that way. That's actually good. Yeah. Does that, that's does pretty that much good? that's pretty much what I go for. So you get the live entertainment, you're right there closer, you know, closer as close as what you can get to any professional sport out there, you know, including basketball as well, just with, with where you're on the boards. But you know, it's an experience. It's an entertainment. It's it's lights. It's dance team girls. It's music. It's you know, Running Man meets meets football. So. Uh, there's, a, there's a great reference. People say, "What's Running Man?" If they just look at the Schwarzenegger movie, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, in your opinion, last question. In your opinion, you know, based on that, for everything that we've seen, we know you've been disconnected from from the AFL for for a few years. But in your opinion, from what you've seen, do you see the AFL returning at all? I don't know if it returns in the exact form of what it used to be. I think there's a few difficulties that they still need to get over, mainly from the business side that we kind of alluded to a little bit in our conversation, just regarding single entity and, you know, workers comp and the medical stuff and things like that, which can be, you know, extremely detrimental. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it comes back in the same form, you know, and part of that's probably also to run from, you know, union and CBA talk and, mm-hmm. you know, going back down that rabbit hole that they've been through a few different times now. Right. Um, but I think arena slash indoor football absolutely survives. Um, it's proven that it, it can, even in some of the smallest communities. So I don't see why it can't get back to where it was, you know, once long ago from a viewership or, even from a, you know, PR, national media, you know, TV perspective in some capacity, particularly now with the streaming capabilities that are out there these days um, and the way that obviously everything's going there. So, so yeah, I, I don't know if it'll come back in the same form, rebound nets, single entity, et cetera. But I think indoor football as a whole, you know, if you look at it as kind of one group with a few subsets, 
um, I absolutely think it'll survive. We want to thank Ryan for joining us for this episode of AFL Rewind. As I mentioned at the top of the of the show, um, usually you do get a little bit more insight to the day-to-day operations of a team, and it was great hearing his side of the story uh, and the stories themselves that came out during his time with the Spokane Shock. If you have any suggestions on players or executives that you'd like to see uh, on the show in for future episodes, you can email us at aflrewind at arenafan.com and we will try our best to make sure that we get those uh, that those people on the show as, as quickly as possible. If you happen to miss any of the previous episodes of AFL Rewind, you can head over to our archive in a couple of places. You can head over to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or our audio version over on YouTube. And also, when you're there on any of those uh, those platforms, uh, make sure you give us a like and give us a good review. So this will be the last show for the 2020 year. We do want to thank you for everything that you have done for us as listeners for this very strange season. Um, And we do hope to bring you more information and more inside looks to the league itself going forward in 2021. So for everybody here at AFL Rewind, make sure you stay safe, wear a mask, and do your part. I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net.